Good morning once again and welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. Happy Resurrection Sunday to all who seek and love the Lord. Today we focus all of our adoration and worship on our risen King, Jesus Christ, who came, who died, who rose, and who will come again. May we all glorify the One who conquered sin and death and the grave, who now has all authority on heaven and in, in heaven and on earth, and is sharing that resurrection life with us. Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Today we are finishing up our Law and Prophets series. This is week 22, 22 weeks, including today, that we have joined with Jesus. We have gathered around Jesus on that hillside in Matthew, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We have worked our way slowly through Jesus' teachings. Why? Because we believe that they're important, they're beautiful, they're meaningful, and they're necessary for us to understand what it means to be Jesus' people. What it means to follow after Him and conform our life, conform our will, uh, conform our mind and our thinking to His way, in His mind, His will. We must listen closely. We must build our very faith on that firm foundation of Jesus Christ. He came and showed us the way to live. And so today we finish up this series, the Law and Prophets series. This is week 22, and today's message is called, The Way... No way, not a way. The way or no way, not a way. I recently heard Tim Keller say, Jesus is either the way or he is no way, but he is not a way. He did not leave that option open to us. I'll say that again. Jesus is either the way or he is no way, but he is not a way. He did not leave that option open to us. You guys, today, among all Sundays, is all about Jesus. Okay, I mean, this is, if you're a Christian, if you even have a marginal association with the Christian faith, today's a big deal. It's like, this is a big day about Jesus, like you would say about Christmas too, right? Jesus, yeah! But today, I want to press into uh, answering that question, well, who is he? Who is Jesus? And there's much that could be said about who Jesus is. But today I'd, look to look, I'd like to look closely at who Jesus thought he was. Who did Jesus say he was when he was among us? The things he said, the things he demonstrated, what, what reality was he pointing us toward uh, regarding his identity, his purpose? Jesus is either the way or he is no way, but he is not a way. He did not leave that option open to us. Tim Keller's statement, it reminds me a bit of what C.S. Lewis once said. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. It's like it's either all in or all out. There's no halfway. Christianity, the faith in Jesus, can't be moderately important. Either it's of no value or it's of ultimate value. It can't just be moderately important. It is, and why, is it, why do we need to say that? Well, because we live in a certain time, in a certain place, in which um, 
we admire all religions. We admire all the religions without allowing truth claims to be made by one over the others. It's, there's pressure in our society to not make any exclusive claims about what you believe. You have to value everyone's as equally valid, everyone's viewpoint, perspective, religious practice, as equally valuable and true. And this is because we live in, a, in, a, in an enlightened, pluralistic Western culture. And it's very popular to, to say these things, to believe these things. We will settle, we settle for a muddled sense of all religions are equally true, or, or sayings like, statements like all religions emanate from the same God. We say those things, we settle for those things without recoiling, without recoiling from the inherent stark contradictions that carries with it. Statements like that, if you understand what religions are actually teaching, give rise to some severe, stark contradictions. Even a brief survey of world religions and their teachings will quickly establish that either A, not all religions are telling the truth, or B, the God of all these religions suffers from a severe multiple personality disorder. Because clearly, if you laid out all the teachings, all the distinctives of these world religions, they're heading in all kinds of directions. They're pointing us in, they're leading us on a, on a wild goose chase. Because it all, all of them say the answer is something different. So we've only got two options there. Either there's some of these that aren't telling the truth, or the God of all these different religions is seriously unwell has a severe multiple, multiple personality disorder. One example I'll give this morning is uh, take Buddhism, for example. Buddhism teaches that the desire, or Buddhism teaches that desire is the root of all suffering. To desire something leads inevitably to suffering. Desire is the root of all suffering. And the answer then is to free yourself from desire Free yourself ultimately from the desire to be an individual, from the desire to be alive, from the desire uh, in the end to even exist. Because your desire to be alive, to exist, to be an individual, to be known is really the problem. Heaven then, in Buddhism, is nirvana. It is to merge finally into the sublime cosmic consciousness and to free yourself from all desire, and thus free yourself from all suffering and all the trappings of self, freeing yourself from the endless cycle of karma. Is anyone familiar with this? I mean, you've kind of read into how Buddhism kind of operates with the epistemology. Okay, free yourself from that. But, but here's the problem. That idea, that concept, that thrust of teaching is really the exact opposite of the Christian view. It's actually the diametrical opposite of the Christian view of, of heaven, if you will, the quote-unquote idea of heaven that we find in Christianity. Because in the Christian conception of ultimate things, of heaven, um, we find that our, all of our hopes are not dissipated or done away with. All of our hopes, all of our desires, they are healed. 
All of our hopes and desires, they are restored. Our sorrow is swallowed up in joy, and the ultimate end is that we are forever present and fully existent with our Creator. That's the exact opposite of merging into the cosmic consciousness and ceasing to exist altogether. That being the eternal bliss we aim for. No, ours is to be made whole again, healed and present with our Maker. Instead of Buddhism's uh, ceasing to be human and no longer possessing a self or an identified personality, a Christian's hope is to become fully human again. This is the vision Jesus gives to us, is that you, by following me, are led into a life more and more full and abundant, more and more fully human, as God intended. That we would become uh, fully human again, gloriously restored, healed and made new, and resurrected into a fresh, abundant sort of life. Guys, that sounds so good to me. This is just one example I'm not picking on Buddhism, but it was just something I felt like it was. It, it highlighted the contrast, the difference. This is just one example, but really a similar comparison could be made with all of the other world religions, whether it be Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, Taoism, Jainism, and the list goes on. They all, when you consider their teachings and their ultimate end, their aim, they are all heading in a wildly different direction than Christianity. Heading in, in the opposite direction, in fact, pointing toward a completely different kind of target regarding life, uh, regarding death, creation, eternity, sin, and salvation. They're all pointing us in a different direction entirely. And the way of following Jesus leads us the other direction. So here's the thing. Who did Jesus say he was? Who did Jesus think that he was? If you read the Bible and you listen very closely to what Jesus taught and what Jesus said about himself, you will find that he is making some startling, startling claims. If you listen to Jesus in context, which is always important, right? Listen to Jesus in context, you will find that he goes well beyond the teachings of his contemporaries. Jesus goes far beyond others. And there are distinct reasons that Jesus Christ's listeners had such strong reactions. You ever wonder? I mean, some people talk about Jesus as just a social justice warrior or just a good moral teacher or a homeless activist or whatever. Man, people got pretty riled up by that guy. I mean, just a, just a peacenik coming into their midst, you know, flip-flops and robes, and they're like, man, I'd say we kill that guy. He's a little bit too hippy-dippy for me. No, I mean, no, something about what Jesus was saying, something about what Jesus, the picture Jesus was painting about himself and about his listeners and about God and stuff, made people react strongly. What he was saying about his listeners, claims he was making about himself and about his identity, these are the things that got him noticed, for sure. Several times throughout the gospel accounts, writers record that Jesus' audience was stunned. They heard what Jesus said and they were like, what? What did you say? They were stunned. They were stunned and they marveled at his teachings. Why was this? What is it that Jesus said? What was it about Jesus' teachings that stunned his listeners, that made them marvel? Well, it's because, first, he taught with authority and power 
an authority and a power which was more indifferent than the other rabbis, than the other religious teachers. And that was significant. That was the first stop along the way when people were just like, this guy is extra. This is different. This is more. This is way different than the other teachers. So it was because he taught with an authority and a power that was different than the other rabbis. But wait, there's more. There's more to what was different about Jesus' teachings. All of the other religious teachers, they pointed to the truth. They pointed their listeners to the truth, while Jesus pointed to himself as the truth. Guys, that's significant. That's remarkable. No other teacher would stand up and say, Hey, look at me. Listen to me, for I bear the truth. I am the truth. No, they pointed to the truth, but Jesus pointed to himself as the truth. As a result, their reactions to Jesus' teachings, they varied, right? Some people heard Jesus say these kinds of things, and they cheered, and they wanted to make him king. Other people heard what Jesus said, and they became enraged, and they wanted to throw him off of a cliff. Right? There's a, a story, one of, it's kind of a strange, fun story. Well, fun in that kind of like, ha ha, oh, Bible. Um, they're like, ah, we don't like what you're saying. I say we uh, pick you up and throw you off the cliff. And the Bible says that he hid himself and slipped through the crowd. Which I don't know, I mean, I always like, my ninja mind kicks in. It's like, what? It's like one of those smoke bombs, like, and he disappeared, or he like, I am not the Messiah you're looking for. You know, like a Jedi mind trick. How did he do that? But it, but it strikes me that in any given crowd, people were like, I must know more about this. I, I, I'm, I'm stunned. I'm struck by what he's saying. I think he should be our king. Then there's others in other settings that are like, no, 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 this is blasphemy. I say we kill him. I say we honor God by throwing him off of a cliff. So what I want to do today is I want to as we finish up our Law and Prophets series, I want to clear up any confusion or misunderstandings about who Jesus is. I feel like that would be a good use of our time here on Easter Sunday to really drill down on who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? And hear me say clearly, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a holy man. He is not just a prophet. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the way, or He is no way. But He is not a way. He did not leave that option open to us. He didn't do it. Now, some of you may be saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You know, that's pretty common and popular to say, that. well, Jesus never said he was God. And it's like, well, I'll take issue with you on that. If you think that Jesus never claimed to be divine, if you think that Jesus never claimed to be God in the flesh, you have either badly misread Scripture or you've not read it at all. And there's only so many explanations for that perspective if you read the Bible and come away with it by saying, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, it means you've either read it poorly or you didn't actually read it. You just read some book about the Bible where this guy had a perspective or this girl had a perspective on the Bible. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus taught, was based on the idea that he was sent by God as Messiah. He was sent by God as the Christ to be the Savior of the world. Even at his birth, he is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus understood this. Otherwise, Jesus being mocked and tortured and killed, it makes little sense. 
As I mentioned before, Jesus wasn't crucified because he was a great moral teacher. We don't crucify our great moral teachers. Jesus wasn't crucified. He wasn't uh, because he was a great moral teacher or a fantastic religious guru or a charismatic spiritual influencer. He was killed because he was a threat. Jesus was crucified because he was a threat to the religious establishment. And he violated people's religious sensibilities. He was claiming to be something far more than they could handle. He claimed to be something far more than they were prepared to receive, prepared to accept, far more. And Jesus said it clearly in John 10, 30. You can write these down and look at them later, but in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says that he and the Father are one. I mean, who says that? I and the Father, are, we're one. I mean, I believe that the God's Holy Spirit's in me. I believe the God's Holy Spirit in you. But Grady, you'll never tell me that you and the Father are one. That if I've seen you, I've seen the Father. No. No, none of us can rightfully say that. But here's Jesus in John 10.30 saying, I and the Father are one. In John 14.9, Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, and then in Matthew 9, um, 1 through 8, Jesus said he had the power to forgive sin. Why was this such a big problem? Why was this so intolerable among his religious uh, leadership that was listening to him? Jesus said in Matthew 9, 1 through 8, that he has the power to forgive sin. He has the power to forgive an offense against God caused by our rebellion and our disobedience, and which was received, was understood as sheer blasphemy. Why? Who is he to say he can forgive sin, to step into the place of God and forgive sins? Why is this a ridiculous thing to consider, that anybody could step in and forgive you for your sins against God, unless they understand themselves to be God? To explain this further, think about it this way. Who can forgive an offense? Who is qualified and, and, and qualified and capable of forgiving an offense? The one offended, right? Only the one offended can forgive an offense. It is either crazy or plain cruel for Jesus to step in and forgive a person for what they did that offended, hurt, and deprived someone else. It's ridiculous. I mean, think about this in a relationship. Someone offends you, and then this third person steps in and is like, says to the offender, you're forgiven. And you're like, wait, what? Who's that guy? Now I'm mad at that guy too. <laughs> you know? It would be weird, and if Jesus is doing this and he doesn't understand himself to be God, he is either crazy... Or he's just being mean. I mean, that's cruel. That's a social blunder par excellence to inject yourself into someone else's uh, disagreement or someone's hurt and say, oh, it's cool. You're fine. Get over it. Who does that? Nobody does that. Unless, of course, Jesus was himself God. Unless Jesus was qualified. Jesus was able to step in and say, your sins are forgiven. Your offense 
against God. Your rebellion, your disobedience, your bent nature because of the fall, I forgive it and I heal it. That's remarkable. This is who Jesus understood himself to be. Capable of stepping in between God and man and saying, you're forgiven. I forgive your sins. He had the power to forgive sins. So let's do away with the misguided belief that the Sermon on the Mount is simply beautiful teachings of a great teacher. That the Sermon on the Mount is a collection of, of sayings from the founder of a world religion. If you listen to Jesus' teachings, if you hear what Jesus said, if you see how Jesus lived, you understand that Jesus is either the way or He is no way, but He is not a way. He didn't leave that option open to us. Now C.S. Lewis, he, expand, he expanded this thought further in his book called Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So, with all this in mind, with all this in mind, let us revisit the very end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. With all this in mind about who Jesus said He was, who Jesus understood Himself to be, let's revisit the very end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and get a sense of His closing guidance and of the people's response. Let's get a sense of how Jesus finishes up His Sermon and what He emphasizes in its culmination and what it all means and why it matters. I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7... Uh, Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds, on a, who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So, notice here the authority with which Jesus speaks in the last part of his sermon. 
observant Jews listening to Jesus that day, they would have been familiar with this metaphor, with this image. They would have been familiar with rabbis using the metaphor of building your faith upon the rock. Now, what rock would they have in mind when a rabbi said, hey, build your faith on the rock? Or if you follow faithfully after God, you will be established upon the rock. The law, but more specifically, they would, they would be... The rock, yes, right, <laughs> good. The temple mount, though, was the living picture of that place where the, the dwelling place of God with the people where God and, and man came together was the temple, the temple mount, the rock of Zion. That's where you would be established if you lived faithfully through the revealed word, the law given to Moses. So the rock of which the rabbis would speak was uh, the Torah or the law given to Moses. One who obediently observed the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai would be established like the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The beloved stones upon which the temple was built, they were massive, they were unshakable, and they were well-beloved by all of God's faithful. Everyone looked to Jerusalem. Everyone looked to Mount Zion and said, Yes, that is the place where I long to dwell. That is where I long to be established through my love of the Lord. But here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus, and he goes beyond the teachings of the other rabbis, and he says this. He says, one must listen to and obey what he is teaching. If you listen to me and what I say, you will be established. Your house of faith will be built upon an unshakable rock. If you listen to me, obey what I am teaching. Uh, if you want to become wise and righteous, if you want the, your life to be able to withstand the storms of life and of God's judgment, you must build your faith upon what I am telling you. The InterVarsity Press New Testament commentary takes this even further by saying, Jesus here refers to his own words the way other Jewish teachers referred to God's law. The language at least implies that Jesus is God's prophetic spoke, spokesperson, but is, is more authoritative than is typical even for the prophets. In this context, the claim is far more radical. One cannot be content with calling Jesus a great teacher, for he taught that he was more than a mere teacher. One must either accept all of his teachings, including those that demand we submit to his lordship, or we must reject them altogether. Jesus is not one way among many. Jesus is the standard of judgment. Jesus is the standard of judgment. So you must align your life, your thinking, your living, all around his way. For there is no other. In Jesus' own words, listen to what he says in John 14, 6 and 7. In John 14, 6 and 7, Jesus told him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One who hears, this is what Jesus is saying, one who hears and obeys all that he taught is being built 
on the rock of truth. Their life is being constructed, is it being established on the rock of truth. It is being made steadfast. It is being it made ready to weather and overcome any storm we may experience, we may encounter in this life and the next. Do you hear how radical this is? I hope I'm lifting Jesus up a little bit higher today and shining the light a little more brightly on Him that He was sublimely unique in all the world among the community of religious teachers of moral leaders in the world Jesus is different he is other listen to what he's saying this is radical Jesus is making some very startling claims about himself and this my friends is a big reason why Jesus's listeners were astonished Something about what Jesus was saying astonished his listeners. They were so astonished. They were so impressed by his teachings. No other rabbi would make the claims of being the lawgiver. I mean, that's stepping into some pretty gigantic shoes to, to, to talk of yourself as the giver of God's law. No other rabbi would do this, claim that they were the lawgiver, or imply that their teachings bore the significance of standing over and possessing more authority than the law and the prophets of old. Everything the law and the prophets said, it hangs on what I'm telling you now, is what Jesus said. All these things hang on this word, right here, right now. I'm gathering all those things up. I'm gathering them up and giving them to you in this. Do you hear it then? Do you hear how bold, how new, how different, how astounding Jesus is? Jesus is saying that his teachings aren't replacing the law, but they are fulfilling and completing and enlivening God's law so that the law can actually give life, that the law can actually lead people into God's very dwelling place. Recall what Jesus taught earlier in his Sermon on the Mount about what he was and was not doing with Moses' law. Jesus made it clear, I come to accomplish the purpose of the law. Look at Matthew 5, uh, 17 through 20. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Don't misunderstand why I have come, which means it's possible to misunderstand why he came, right? Jesus makes it, hey, hey, be careful here. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish or do away with the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do not misunderstand why I've come. Jesus made it very clear. His mission was to reveal God to us. Jesus' mission was to reveal God to us in a fresh and life-giving way. A way that helps us day by day to build the house of our faith on the steadfast rock of God's revealed truth. 
If we hear and if we obey Jesus' teachings, our faith will be strong. If we hear and we obey Jesus' teachings, our faith will be established and able to withstand both the storms of this life and able to withstand the final judgment. When we actually stand before God and give an account for our lives, we'll have nothing to fear. If we've listened to and we've obeyed what Jesus taught us, we have nothing to fear. We will stand in His righteousness, in His strength, established on His word when we stand before God. The implications of obedience to Jesus, they come to bear on our life now and in the life to come. Essentially, it's this. What we do with Jesus now makes all the difference. That was true back in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and it's true for us today. What we do with Jesus makes all the difference. How we respond to His teachings, as we how we respond to His presence, it makes all the difference. Jesus is either the way or He is no way, but He is not a way. He did not leave that option open to us. So what will you do? How do you respond then to Jesus? So today, may we hear Jesus' teachings, may we sit with Him and may we hear His sermon, and may we have ears to hear and eyes to see all that He would teach us. May we be amazed at the scope and the scale, the weight and the meaning of all that Jesus Christ would say to us. And may we commit to listening, obeying, and building on His words. May we take in the full panorama of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and then build our very lives upon His guidance, His commands, and His promises. And then, when the wind blows, when the rain falls, when the floods rise, may we stand firm because we are rooted on the unshakable foundation of our risen King, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that we would marvel today. And maybe for the first time in a long time, we would stand astounded in the presence of Jesus. Not just in the power of His resurrection, but in the power of His truth. That He came and He made it clear. The problem was not in His communication. The problem was in our sinfulness and our willingness to listen and to receive and accept what He said. Jesus was very clear about who He was and why He came to dwell among us. And what we do with Him makes all the difference. God, we understand that. We understand, too, that that makes us feel uh, tension. Maybe some of us feel even conflicted. Are we willing? Are we willing to surrender, to accept, to receive that He is God among us? That His Word is truth? That everything else that had been said through Moses, through the prophets, it's all gathered up and offered to Jesus Himself as He gives us His way and His Word. Oh, Father, I pray today we would rightly appreciate who Jesus is. Hear clearly who Jesus said He was and why He came. And then may we respond appropriately. May we align our very lives around Jesus believing that He is the source, He is the giver, He is the truth. 
that if we listen and we obey, our lives will be established on a firm foundation. And we'll have nothing to fear when the storms come in this life. And we'll have nothing to fear when we stand in the judgment. That Jesus' name, Jesus' renown will be all over us. We will be clothed in His righteousness. And we will be welcomed into God's home. We will be welcomed into God's family. We will bear the family resemblance, God. Oh, I look forward to that day. So God, today we thank you for the power of Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. The power to save, the power to atone, the power to forgive, and the power to bring us safely home. Lord, we lay our whole lives at his feet. Transform us, renew us, save us, and bring us back to life, we ask. You're so good to us, God. We didn't deserve Jesus at all. But because of your goodness and your mercy, you desire to seek us out to, to save us. And through a sheer act of your mercy, through grace alone, you have made a way for us to be saved, to be made whole, to become once again fully human, part of that good creation. And so God... We owe you all things. We owe you everything. And so, God, I pray that we would offer up to you today our whole life. May our whole lives be a pleasing sacrifice and offering to you, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. Hey, we're going to worship a little bit more, and this is a chance for you to just adore God, worship God. Maybe you've had a, a, a thin and inadequate understanding of who Jesus is. Maybe that's been kind of a weak spot in your faith. Maybe you've never appropriated Jesus as God, as the very lawgiver, as the truth teller, the one who came to seek and save all that was lost. Maybe this is a chance for you to sit and confess those things, repent of those things, and enjoy the reality of who Jesus is. You will find God welcomes you. All who place their faith in Jesus are welcome into God's family. So if you'd like to pray with somebody, I know maybe it's been a long, tough year for you and you'd just love to stand and pray with somebody. I'll be at the back. Curtis is back there as well. We would love to gather with you and just pray. But don't rush this time. Sit with the Lord. Pray. Listen. Have a conversation. Maybe a conversation you've been meaning to have for a while. This is an important time, so make the most of this opportunity.